two of my favorite songs, Greg. Thanks. Didn't get all three, but you got two of those. All right. First uh, Timothy chapter two. We're going to begin in verse nine. Just looking at verses nine to fifteen uh, this morning. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. The Lord will bless the reading of his word again this morning. Let's just pray. Our Father in heaven, thanks again for um, the authority of God's word. We're thankful that um, we can read it, that we can um, hear uh, from it. And uh, we certainly would pray this morning that you would be glorified uh, and um, just honored in the reading of your word. Lord God, uh, if we hear your voice this morning, we pray that we would not harden our hearts. Um, we ask these things in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, so uh, you remember there that our theme verse for this epistle is in chapter 3, right? And I'll just read it to you one more time. Remember he says, these things I write to you, uh, beginning verse 14 actually, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so today we're going to be looking at how do the women conduct themselves in the house of God. And so what we're going to look at is God's pattern for a godly woman. Okay, God's pattern for a godly woman as it relates to her conduct in the house of God. And the first thing we look at here in verse 9 is modest dress. Okay, modest apparel. Um... It's interesting, right, that James did a great job last week looking at the, what he brings out with the men specifically. In fact, it says in verse 9 there that the men pray everywhere. That's actually specifically men it's talking to there. And later on in chapter 3, we're going to look at some um, qualifications for elders, which were men as well. But it's interesting, as he goes to address the women here, he says, in like manner also. The writer's thoughts is still running upon the public assemblies for worship. Um, and it's also interesting how he, he's going to connect this with prayer. And so it's interesting to me that, you know, prayer, uh, as was brought up last week, is so vitally important. And he says, in like manner, women, the way you dress is just as important, which is so interesting to me. There are so many other things he could have said, right? In like manner, women, and he could have mentioned a bunch of things. But here, by inspiration of God, the writer says, okay, listen, be careful what you wear. <laughs> okay? Um, adorn, the word adorn here, uh, the verb cosmeo means to put in order, arrange, or to make ready. It's actually a word that is opposite of the word ka- chaos, or which is the word we get chaos from. Right? It's opposite of that. 
Okay? And so, by the use of this word, Paul indicates that the adornment of the Christian woman should be one in which order, not disorder, obtains. And this orderliness is not merely to the relationship of the articles of clothing to one another, right? Really what Paul is saying here is that it's to the relationship of what she wears to her Christian character and testimony. That's the relationship there. In other words, the apparel, right, what the woman wears should be consistent with who she is, a child of God. The word modest here he uses, is the translation of cosmios, which means well-arranged or seemly, right? It simply means decent and orderly. So you kind of see a theme running through these verses. It's all about order and orderly. Um, It is related to the Greek word from which we get the English word cosmetic. And so a woman's clothing, right, should be decent, orderly, and in good taste. He uses this word here um, that it should be with all propriety, right? Uh, literally, in fact, the King James, I think, says shame, shamed, shamedness or whatever, right? It literally, right, um, means modesty or the avoiding of extremes. The avoiding of extremes, right? So the word is a blend of modesty and humility, right? A woman who possesses this quality is ashamed to go beyond what is decent and proper. That's what Paul's saying. It should shame a woman to want to go beyond what she knows is decent. And then, of course, use the word moderation. Right? This is soundness of mind, self-control, and sobriety. Right? It describes an inner self-control. In other words, a spiritual radar okay? that tells people what is good and proper. Now listen again, Paul does not forbid the use of jewelry or lovely clothes. Okay? What he's forbidding is the excessive use of them as substitutes for the true, true beauty of a meek and quiet spirit. In fact, Peter addresses this as well in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6. through 6. Okay, That's what God is looking for, right? The beauty of a quiet or meek spirit. Now listen, Ephesus, right? This is the church of Ephesus we're looking at, uh, was a wealthy commercial city. And some women there, they competed against each other for attention and popularity. So braided hair, costly jewelry, fancy clothing, those were all an accepted way to get to the top socially. Paul is now, these women who are getting saved and are part of the church, right? Paul is admonishing these Christian women to say, hey, listen, you need to focus now on the true beauty, okay, that only Christ can give. There's no more competition, no more of this trying to go to the extreme, right? You know what's decent, you know what's proper, okay? You've got that spiritual radar now, okay? Now you need to focus on the true beauty that only Christ can give. Warren Wearsby says this, he says, a woman who depends only on the externals will soon run out of ammunition. <laughs> right? She may attract attention, but she will not win lasting affection. We should not be dressing to get attention. 
But then in verse 10, you will see there that um, women should not be known for their good looks, but for their good works. That's what he's saying there. He's saying in verse 10, listen, here's what's proper for the women to wear. Good deeds. That's what you should be wearing. It's not about the apparel. It's not about the outside. It's, it's what's inside that's important. Okay? You see, God doesn't want glitter and gaudiness to replace godliness. Right? It's character, not clothes, that make a woman. It's holiness, not hair. It's godliness, not Gucci. Right? You like what I did there, Kim? Here's what William McDonald says. He says that such clothing that we're talking about, good deeds, right, does not distract others from communion with God, but rather provokes such fellowship. Neither does it cause envy or jealousy in a wrong sense, but only encourages others to follow the example. And I think that just wraps it up. It's perfect, right? Okay, if you're wearing something, right, that is distracting others, it's not decent. Okay, okay. right, that what we should be putting on is good deeds, because that is what brings fellowship, provokes such fellowship. Okay, we don't want you wearing something that's going to cause someone to envy or be jealous. Okay, this whole competition thing, right? We only want you wearing things that encourage others to follow that example. Now Proverbs 31 verse 30 says this, charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Okay? It's not about the charm and the beauty that the world tells you that's what makes you valuable. <laughs> right? What's beautiful in the sight of God is a woman who fears the Lord. Right? Okay? And so I guess my question for the ladies this morning based on this is who do you dress for on Sunday mornings? Who do you dress for? Perhaps, you know, next Sunday, as you look in the mirror, you just ask yourself that. Who am I dressing for? Right? We want everything to be done decently and orderly. Um, it's amazing, right, that this is what God says. When it comes to the conduct of women in the house of God, the first thing he mentions is, careful what you wear. Okay? Be careful with what you wear. Very good. So that's the first thing. The next thing he says, as far as um, some patterns of a godly woman here or how she may conduct herself in the house of God, is she needs to submit to God's authority. Okay? She needs to submit to God's authority. Now again, Paul is still dealing with the conduct of women in the assemblies. Okay? He uses this word here in verse 11, let a woman learn in silence. Okay? The translation I don't like very much um, because it's almost as if like, you know, the woman cannot utter a word in the meeting, and that's not true, okay? We've just sang together, and there are times when the women are going to be fellowshipping and talking and maybe teaching Sunday school or things like that. Really, the, the, this word silence, as translated silence, is actually the exact same word for peaceable in verse 2, okay? Right? He wants the women to learn peaceably, peaceably, okay? And so um, perhaps... Okay, perhaps what was happening in Corinth, right, was happening in Ephesus as well. We get a little idea in Corinth as to what was happening there, and very well it could be the case here. 
And I'll read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. It says, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for the women to speak in church. You see, women in Corinth, and I believe here probably in Ephesus too, were disturbing the church service. There's someone up here teaching or prophesying, right? And they're asking their husband, hey, what, what does that mean there? What is that? And so they're literally, by asking their husbands questions while their person is prophesying or teaching, they're actually disturbing the church service. Right? And so some of these women too... Uh, you have to understand where they're coming from. It's a culture, right? And it's a, it's a society where they are looked down upon. Women were not valuable. They, they, what they said was not were considered hearing. And now Christ brings a whole new teaching, right? Christ says, hey, listen, there's no male or female now when it comes to your position in Christ. In fact, it says the men, right, dwell with her, as the weaker vessel in an understanding way, as joint heirs with Christ. This, is, this, was, this blew the women away at this time. To hear someone say, hey, listen, okay, you are joint heirs with men. Okay? And so some of these women, I believe, right, they were abusing this newfound freedom in Christ. Okay? And they were creating disturbances in the services by interrupting. And this is what Paul is addressing. Right? It does not forbid a woman to take an active part in the work of the church. It's not what it's forbidding. Okay? It's not forbidding her to take an active part in the work of the church in her own sphere under the limitations that are imposed upon her in the rest of this passage and in other places in Scripture. But it certainly does not forbid her to take an active part in the work of the church in her own sphere. Okay? And so, verse 12 here says, and I do not permit a woman to teach. Here's how we can understand what Paul is saying here. right? Uh, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach. If the verb was in the aorist tense, okay, um, it would mean to teach. And so Paul would say, I don't permit a woman to teach. And so therefore, we would not have Sunday school teachers, we would not have older women teaching younger women, Right? We wouldn't have those things, but that's not what it's saying here. It's actually in the present tense. And so it actually means, I do not permit women to be a teacher. And so here, Paul is not saying, I do not permit a woman to teach, but instead he is saying, I do not permit a woman to be a teacher. And we'll talk about that in a second. But women are permitted to teach. Older women, as I said, should teach younger women. That's in Titus chapter 2, 3 and 4. Women can teach children. Right? Timothy was taught by his mother and grandmother. Okay? The teachers that Paul is referring to are those God-called, God-equipped teachers recognized by the church as having authority in the church in matters of doctrine and interpretation. Okay? That's the limitation. Okay? They are not permitted to be those. Okay? Those teachers. Okay? So women are not permitted to be a teacher in the sense that they must not assume authority in the church and try to take the place of man. Now, those of us who hold 
to the inspiration of the authority of God's word, knows that Paul's teachings, right, come from God and not from himself. And so if we have a problem with what the Bible says regarding the women in the church, right, the issue is not with Paul or with Peter, because Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3, or with me, but with the Lord, okay, um, who gave the word. Okay? And so the word submission here uh, is uh, actually translated in Ephesians chapter 5 as submitting and translated submit in Colossians 3 verse 18. It literally means to rank under. Okay? That's what the word submission means. Okay? Whether it's submitted, submit, submission, right? It means to rank under. And so anyone who has served in the armed forces, right, knows that rank has to do with order and authority, okay? Not with value or ability. Okay? A colonel is higher in rank than a private. But that does not mean that the colonel is, is a better man than the private. Could not be the case. Could be that the, you know, uh, colonel is a creep, okay? It only means that the colonel has a higher rank and therefore more authority. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, it says, let all things be done decently and in order. You see, this is the principle God follows in his creation. Okay? Just as an army would be in confusion if there were no levels of authority, so society would be in chaos without submission. You have to have order. And so children should submit to their parents because God has given parents the authority to train children and discipline them in love. Employees should submit to their employers and obey them. Citizens should submit to governing authorities, even if the authorities are not Christians. We are called to submit to them. Okay? You see, submission is recognizing God's order in the home and in the church and joyfully obeying it. Okay? I'm going to say that again. Submission, okay, is recognizing God's order in the home and in the church and joyfully obeying it. Submission, I believe, is the key to spiritual growth and ministry. Husbands, right, should be submitted to the Lord. Okay? Christians, are told to submit to each other. Wives should submit to the Lord and to their husbands. And women should exercise quietness and help keep order in the church. This is God's plan. This is God's order. Okay? Now, he didn't have to, but God's going to give you reasons for that. Okay? And so, the reason for this is found in the original order of creation and in the circumstances of the fall of man. Paul gives some arguments to back up his admonition that the Christian men in the church should be the spiritual leaders. Okay? So the first one is this, in verse 13. 
right? Adam was formed first, and then Eve. That's his first argument, okay? Adam was formed first, okay? Eve was second, okay? Paul actually uses the same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verses 1 through 10. Now, we need to keep in mind, okay, that priority does not mean superiority, okay? Priority does not mean superiority, okay? Just as if you're not first does not imply inferiority, okay? Um, Man and women were both created by God and in God's image, okay? The issue is only authority. Man was created first, okay? So if I could paraphrase the meaning, a woman is not to be an elder, okay? A woman is not to occupy an authoritative teaching position over men. This is what the text is saying, right? God has established a pattern of authority for the church, and that authority lies with a man, not with a woman. God has given that authority to man. And so, with that, okay, I know that sometimes the, some women, which even though we've made it clear that priority is not superiority, but it devalues women sometimes. They feel like, oh man, I just don't feel as important because God has not given us authority in the church. But I just want to remind you again of, um, as I said before, God, when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach, Right, God is not forbidding them uh, to have an active work in the church within their sphere. If you look at throughout the Bible, it's amazing uh, how valuable women are in the work of God. Um, it's incredible, right? And we could list example after example of how God used women to accomplish His work. Okay, but even in the New Testament, even within the beginning of the church. God uses women all the time. Um, I love how he used uh, the two women there. There's the, the brother there who got saved, and he's preaching hellfire and brimstone, and these two women take him aside and say, hey, listen, let me tell you how things really should go. Okay? And they're really able to do that. Okay? Uh, you've got, uh, we've already said, the influence of Timothy's mother and grandmother. When you look at Jesus here on the earth, how many times the women right, were vitally important in Jesus' ministry, preparing him for his burial. They were the last ones at the cross. They were the first ones at his resurrection, right? Over and over again, okay, uh, the, this idea of authority in the local church does not have any significance on the value of you as a woman of God, okay? You're extremely valuable to him and uh, completely necessary in the work that he's doing. But like I said, when it comes to um, this first one here, Adam was formed first and then Eve. And so God has established a pattern of authority for the church and that authority lies with the man. Now, the second reason he gives is in verse 14. It says this has to do with man's fall into sin, right? It says here that Satan deceived the woman into sinning, okay? Again, he uses this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, but we know this is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And so he seems to be referring to how the original temptation was for Eve to usurp her husband's leadership role. 
When Satan brought about the fall, right, he approached who? Eve. Okay? You don't think Satan knew God's order? He knew. He knew exactly what he was doing. Okay? God even then had the authority was in man, not the woman, and yet Satan goes, you know what? I'm going to go to the woman. I'm going to go to Eve. Okay? And he did not go to Adam. Right? He tempted Eve to lead. And guess what? She did. <laughs> it's amazing, right, that when she turns and gives the apple to Adam who was with her, right, Adam is there the whole time, and yet we don't hear ever Adam what? Opening his mouth. It's Eve the whole time talking. Okay? It should have been reversed, right? Okay? As soon as the serpent had approached Eve and asked her that question, Adam said, honey, I got this. I got this. Don't worry about it. Okay? But instead, Adam is like typical today. Adam sat back, let his wife do all the talking. Okay? Even though he was the leader. He was the authority. And God, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is telling Paul here now, listen, this is one of the reasons why i got to get this order back together again. Okay? Way back at the fall, that's what happened. You guys messed up my order. And so... When Satan brought the fall, he approaches Eve, not Adam. He tempts her to lead. The fact that Adam was not deceived, in fact, the Bible says that he was not deceived, okay? That means he simply submitted to his wife's decision. He wasn't deceived. He just said, okay, honey. The fall happened because the enemy tempted the woman to usurp her God-ordained leader. She wanted to be like God. Free of all authority, including her husband's. That was the fall of Satan, right? As well. He wanted to be free from authority. He wanted to be able to do his own thing. And we see it right in the first sin of creation, the same thing. And so we can see God's reestablishment of his order after the fall. Right? Who does God approach first? Adam. He doesn't go to Eve. He goes to Adam. Okay? Instead of approaching Eve, he approaches Adam to hold him accountable. And we know that by one man, right? By sin, by Adam, I'm sorry, sin entered into the world. Adam's responsible for the sin that entered into this world because he was the leader. He was the God-given authority. And so the man here, he sinned with his eyes wide open because he rejected the God-given order. He listened to his wife, disobeyed God, and brought sin and death (coughs) into the world. (coughs) It was his fault because he was the leader. God had given him that. That responsibility, that authority. And then, of course, after God um, um, approaches Adam, he then approaches Eve and then the serpent. And so Adam, along with Eve, they were supposed to rule over the serpent. Instead, they both submitted to his temptation. The order was meant to be God, Adam, Eve, and then the serpent. And so the submission of wives, right, to their own husbands is part of the original creation. The disorder that we have in society today results from a violation of that God-given order. And then it carries over into the local church. God has given that authority to man, 
and women are to submit or rank under that authority that God has given. <clears throat> and then we get to this verse 15. I'll just have you know that it's interesting is that uh, all the expositors, all the commentators say that this is the hardest verse to interpret in all of the New Testament. Thank you. So I'm going to just say some simple things first, and then after that, we'll see where we can go from this. So in verse 15, right, uh, it says, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Okay, so first, the salvation that's spoken of here is not salvation in the ordinary sense of the word, as when a sinner puts his faith in the Lord Jesus and is saved from sin and becomes a child of God, okay? The woman uh, that is spoken of here is a Christian, right? For Paul speaks of her as continuing in faith and love and holiness, right? These things could not be said of an unsaved person, okay? The word is used in the sense of being saved from something other than from an unsaved condition, okay? which makes sense. Again, if, we, if this was referring to being saved from an unsaved condition, right? we know that that can only be had through faith in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus, never by doing something, right? never by good works or anything that a sinner might do. Okay? So this word is being a sense of being saved from something other than an unsaved condition. Okay? So pretty much this is it, right? Paul calls for women everywhere to be barefoot and pregnant. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I'd be feeling pretty good about my wife right now. Yeah, so. All right, so um, let's look at some possible um, theories that people have here. One, some think that it's actually the simple promise from God that a Christian mother will be saved from death in the physical act of childbearing. However, we know that's not always true. Okay? You may even know people that were Christian women who died at childbirth or trying to deliver their children. It's just, it's just not true. Okay? It's not always the case. Um, another suggestion is, <clears throat> which I think is crazy, but... No one could reasonably suggest that the verse means that a woman receives eternal salvation by virtue of becoming a mother of children. Okay. Again, there are some women who haven't had children. Um, also, this would also mean that um, salvation would be by something you do, by works. Okay. So that one is just not reasonable at all. Okay. Um, when it says childbearing, okay, Believe it or not, in the original, it says the childbearing or the childbearing. So because of this, there are many that believe that Paul is referring to the birth of Christ. Essentially, he says that Eve was deceived by the servant, um, but we must remember that God saved the world through the woman. However, this scarcely seems to satisfy the sense of the passage, since men are saved in the same way. Um, and then we get to this, these last one kind of broken into two parts here. Um, and I'll just say this woman's true fulfillment is in her devo uh, is in her devotion to that for which she was created 
and that is the bearing and rearing of children, okay? And this person that uh, quoted this, he said, and this is a loftier work for her than being a leader in the church. Okay, remember, Paul had just got done telling, hey, listen, you cannot be a teacher in the church, a leader in the church, okay? However, there's something more loftier than that. You were created to bear children and to rear children. Saved in this sense, right, would refer to being preserved from any negative stigma from not serving in a teaching or leadership role, right? Women bear the fruit of salvation by not rebelling, but honoring God's call for them to serve in the home. So the idea of being saved through childbearing is saying, listen, even though you can't teach in the church, right, have authority as a spiritual leader, you can be saved from that negative stigma, so to speak, by f- embracing and, uh, and honoring God with the role that he gave you, and that is the ability to bear children and have children. And again, we know that not every woman has had a child, but we're talking about women in general. We're talking about women in general. Okay? Um, it's been said, right, that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And certainly this is true. Okay? And although God has not called women to be teachers or have positions of authority in the church, he has potentially given them the most important mission. Now, with that being said, I was reading uh, Weiss, an expositor, and he shared this, and it's similar, but it's a little different too, is um, he says, as Eve's penalty for sinning was, um, was, so Eve's penalty for sinning against God was that he was going to greatly multiply her sorrow in her conception and pain she would bring forth in children. Remember, that was, the, that was her, for, for her transgression there. Because again, the context here is we're talking about Genesis. He's already brought, referred Genesis twice. I think here, why would he leave Genesis? He's still there. Um, and so, remember, the penalty for her transgression that was that she was going to have sorrow in conception and that she was going to have pain in bringing forth children. So, but just as in the case of man, right, the world being as it is, the sentence has proved to be a blessing, okay? So it is the case with the woman, right? So here's what we mean. In Genesis 3.19, it says to the man, right, his his, um, punishment was, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, okay? And so in that, that statement, right, that expresses man's necessity, his duty, his um, privilege, and his dignity, Okay, if in this case, remember, we're talking to the women, right? But if Paul's argument had led him to emphasize the man's part in this first transgression in Genesis, he might have said also in this verse, he shall be saved in his toil. But because he's not talking to the man right here, he may not have included it. But because he's addressing the women and looking at their transgression in that Genesis chapter three, that's where he says, and she will be saved in childbearing. Okay, but if again, if he was emphasizing the man's part, we very well could have read, he shall be saved in his toil, his overcoming the obstacles of nature. And so Paul takes the view that childbearing, rather than public speaking, is a woman's primary function, duty, privilege, and dignity, just like man toiling is his. 
Okay? And he reminds Timothy that there is another aspect of the story in Genesis besides the fact that Eve was deceived and ate the fruit first. The pains of childbirth were her sentence. Yet in undergoing these, she finds salvation. Okay? That is her normal and natural duty. Okay? So just as hard labor is the man's salvation in a set of circumstances and surroundings that without it would cause him to deteriorate instead of making progress in character, so the pains of childbirth become the salvation of the woman. And in the same sense, and for the same purpose, that of enabling the woman to adjust herself in her circumstances and surroundings, that she too will do the same. I was listening to um, Steve Price this weekend, and he was addressing another difficult verse in John chapter 15. And when he got done telling us what he thinks John chapter 15 means, I love that he said, and you know what, when we all, when we get to heaven one day, we will find out, he said, that I am wrong. And we all laugh just like that. And he goes, he goes, and guess who I got that quote from? He said, I got it from William McDonald. He goes, and guess who he got that quote from? Harry Ironside. So I'm going to take their quotes today too and say, hey, listen, that's what I think. But when we get to heaven, we're probably going to find out that I am wrong. Okay. But uh, Paul is urging men to fulfill their God-appointed role of leading the church and urging women to let them lead. Let them lead. Okay. Now, this was obviously a problem back in Timothy's church in Ephesus, right? It's still a problem today, okay? Um, and so, both men and women must assume their respective places of responsibility in the church, okay? That's how we are to conduct ourselves in the house of God, uh, for his honor, for his glory, and so that it, our church I mean, would be peaceable, okay? And orderly as the way God had intended, Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we thank you for your church. We're thankful that uh, you did not just uh, build your church and leave us without instructions. We're thankful that you've left us your precious word so that we can read it and study it and, and glean from it. And uh, so we might know how to conduct ourselves when we come together as your church. And so we do pray that, especially here at Brantford Bible Chapel, that everything that we do here would be uh, decent, and it would be in order, in God's order. And so, Lord God, help us when it comes to interpreting these things. Give us clarity. Give us conviction. Uh, we're living in a time where the world, but even the church, wants to get away from some of the things that are in your word. Uh, maybe because of popularity. Uh, maybe because of just um, various other reasons, Lord. Uh, so, Lord God, help us to be uh, men and women of your word. Uh, and so, Lord God, help us as we continue to look at how we are to conduct ourselves uh, in your house. We're thankful that there's an assembly here in North Brantford. We're thankful for all those that are here. And uh, again, we pray that we would just be a place that would continue to um, uh, be like a city on a hill, uh, shining brightly for you. And uh, we would glorify you here in this place. And so again, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.